Welcome to Silicon Valley Trends, a free podcast series published by Silicon Valley Business School. I'm your host, David Smith. At Silicon Valley Business School, we provide affordable, real-world online business education to everyone, everywhere, and guide entrepreneurs towards success with their startup ventures. This episode is about control and power. Who controls your company? Who has the power to hire, fire, and make decisions? Well, in a regular corporation, it works like this. The shareholders hold ultimate power within the organization, but they vote to elect the board of directors to run the company. The board of directors then appoints officers who can appoint managers. There are various titles and roles for the officers. CEO and president are perhaps the most recognized titles for officers. The chief executive officer is usually the person with authority to make day-to-day decisions and hire and fire the managers and other employees. So the managers and officers can be fired by the CEO, the CEO can be fired by the board of directors, and the board of directors can be fired by the shareholders. The shareholders are the owners of the corporation and they can't be fired. Above the shareholders in the hierarchy of powers, though, there are no individuals, but there are the company's bylaws, its articles of association, and the whole company is subject to the powers of the state where the company was incorporated. Where state law clashes with federal law, federal law wins. But corporations and all forms of companies are created by states in the United States, so they're creatures of state law and governed by the law of the state in which they are incorporated. The most popular state to incorporate in the US is Delaware. This is because Delaware made it easy and relatively inexpensive to incorporate there, and Delaware has the most sophisticated system of corporate law in the world. So it's become something of a standard that people have become familiar with. Shareholders are familiar with Delaware law and they trust it to protect their interests. Although the shareholders are the stakeholders with ultimate power in a corporation, they make decisions through votes, and no single shareholder has any real power other than the power to vote. And according to the corporation's bylaws, voting usually only takes place once a year. If you hold a single share in a large corporation, you get to vote your share whenever a meeting of the shareholders is held. But you really don't have any substantial power beyond that. Shareholders as a group vote in the members of the boards of directors, according to the voting arrangement that was defined in the corporation's bylaws. Some companies have only one shareholder. Others have thousands of them who vote by proxy when they're unable to attend the shareholder meeting in person. A proxy means they have a representative vote according to their instructions on their behalf. The shareholders vote to elect the members of the board of directors. Like a shareholder, a member of the board of directors has no real power as an individual because the board of directors has to vote as a single body. It's a bit like a jury in a trial. No individual member of the jury has the power to do anything other than vote. A member of the board of directors certainly has influence but has no power to make any decisions 
without a majority of the board of directors backing the decision as a single body. According to the company Bylaws, a decision of the board of directors is usually made by a simple majority. If there are five directors and three vote yes, the resolution is passed in a traditional corporation. It's always a good idea that a board of directors consists of an odd number of members to avoid a stalemate situation where half vote one way and half vote the other. One experienced CEO told me that a board of directors should be made up of an odd number of members and three is too many. I guess that's understandable as a CEO is answerable to the board, can be hired and fired by the board of directors and doesn't have ultimate power unless she has control of the board and a voting majority of the shares. Large publicly traded corporations usually have seven or more members of the board of directors. Small companies have fewer. The minimum under Delaware law is just one. The board of directors is answerable to the shareholders and the other stakeholders for the performance and operations of the corporation. So holding a board seat is a responsible position. Board members can be sued by shareholders or held responsible for the company's wrongdoing by the state. So you might wonder why anyone would want to take on the liability and hold such a position, considering that the compensation is usually relatively small. You'll find that board members are often representing the interests of a group of shareholders or their shareholders themselves. The chairman of the board of directors sounds like a powerful position, but the chairman is simply a member of the board with duties to interface with the CEO, call the board meetings and manage the meetings themselves. In the traditional corporate structure, all board members have only one vote. And this applies to the chairman as well as the other directors. The board members vote to elect the CEO, who they provide with powers to run the day-to-day -day operations. When I was at law school, I took as many classes on corporate law as I could. And one of the classes had a game where the students played the roles of shareholders, members of the board of directors and officers. The whole idea of the game was to take control of the company but no one group had sufficient shares to elect all the members of the board. My group won control of the company, and we did it because we first took a majority of the board seats by using all our shares to vote for our board members. We then had our board members elect the person we nominated as CEO. The other groups messed up because they assumed their CEO had to have a seat on the board of directors so they wasted votes trying to elect their nominated CEO to the board. The CEO does not need to be on the board of directors. After we'd voted in our directors and taken control of the board, we could have the board then elect our CEO. Um, let me clarify an important distinction here between the word director and the word director. Yes, they are both identical words, but they have very different meanings. A member of the board of directors is not the same as a director of marketing or director of engineering. A director of a function in the company is a manager, ultimately reporting to the CEO who reports to the board of directors. It's unfortunate that the word director is used in these two different ways. So you sometimes need to clarify what authority a person with the title director holds. 
As we discussed, a member of the board of directors has no powers to sign contracts on behalf of the company or bind the company to an agreement as the board has to make decisions through a majority vote. And one individual member is essentially powerless without the approval of the majority of the board and a board resolution. A director of marketing, however, may hold agency powers to buy advertising and enter into marketing agreements on behalf of the company, binding the company to these contracts. So this would be a good point for me to explain the concept of agency. If you wanted to buy a car, but it was miles away, you couldn't see the car yourself, you might send a friend who was local that you could trust and give him the powers to act as your agent. You're the principal and he's your agent. You can make, have your friend make decisions on your behalf with respect to buying the car. And as your authorized agent, your friend can bind you to an agreement that he makes on your behalf. So if your friend checks the car out and decides it's a good fit for you, he can negotiate a price with the seller and make a commitment that you will wire the funds within 24 hours. You are bound by your agent's commitment to the seller as though you'd made it yourself. So how does this car seller know that your friend is acting as your authorized agent, so has powers to bind you to his commitments? Well, he has to check with you. If you tell the car seller that your friend John will be looking at the car and is acting, at your, acting as your authorized agent with powers to make decisions and enter agreements on your behalf, then the agency is created. Of course, the seller can't rely on your friend's assurance that he's your authorized agent. Otherwise, people without many morals would be wandering around telling other people they're the authorized agent for the Sultan of Brunei and buying mansions all over the world that the Sultan of Brunei would not have to pay for. Before we leave this discussion on agency, let's look at the scenario where the agent you send to buy your car decides to make an offer to buy the house instead. This would be beyond the scope of his agency and you would not be on the hook to pay for the house. When creating agency powers, it's important to restrict them to specific areas. Otherwise, you could find yourself buying houses and all sorts of things that you don't want through your agents. In our company, the board of directors is acting as an agent for the shareholders and the CEO is acting as an agent for the board of directors. An agency relationship can be assumed in certain situations. If a person has been appointed CEO by a board of directors, it's reasonable to assume that person has agency powers to bind the company to decisions that are within the normal course of business for that company. So if you're negotiating the purchase of widgets with the CEO of a company that's primary business is the sale of widgets, you can assume the CEO has agency powers to bind the company to the agreement and the CEO that the CEO makes with you. It's called a parent agency and it can be applied to situations like this where it can be assumed that the CEO has certain agency powers. On the other hand, if you're negotiating with the CEO of the widget company, and he agrees to sell you the whole company, he would likely be going beyond the scope of his powers, as the sale of the company usually requires the approval of the board of directors and the approval of the majority of the shareholders. When I'm brokering the sale of patents, I often see this issue come up. The CEO of a large company with thousands of patents has apparent authority to sell a few dozen patents, a small percentage. 
But if the patents represent all or substantially all the company's assets, this is a decision requiring approval by the shareholders as well as the board of directors. The last two patent sale transactions I brokered involved a couple of failed startups. The patents did represent substantially all the company's assets. So we had to make sure that we had board and shareholder approval from the sellers to ensure that the patent sale couldn't be scuppered by the shareholders later on or unraveled by the shareholders later on. The chain of agency in a corporation goes from the shareholders to the board of directors to the CEO and the officers. This is how companies work. Or this is how they tell you companies work in law school. But it's not quite so simple when you get out into the real world. Boards of directors can be divided into committees, each with a specific task. For example, it wouldn't make sense for the whole board to decide on the compensation of the CEO if the CEO is actually a member of the board. Larger corporations typically separate out a subset of the board to decide executive compensation and make sure none of the executives are on that committee, as that might be considered a conflict of interest. Other committees can be formed to handle specific tasks. It's like the board appoints committees as agents to act on behalf of the board. There can be many links in the chains of agency when a corporation grows large. But then, as I've discussed on other podcasts, as soon as the company issues preferred stock, there's a power shift that distorts the way corporations operate and decisions are made. Venture capital and many angel investors will only invest if they can buy preferred stock. For more details on preferred stock, I suggest you listen to the podcast episode titled Preferred Pizza Toppings. But here we'll focus on how this shifts the power in an investor-backed private corporation. In the Preferred Pizza Toppings episode, we explain that you can think of common stock as a pizza with a bare crust, where preferred stock has all sorts of fancy toppings on that crust. The toppings represent rights held by preferred stockholders that put them in a more powerful position than the holders of common stock. In a typical venture capital-backed startup, the holders of preferred stock get to elect their own members of the board of directors. If you're the founder of a tech startup and you hold 80% of the shares, you might expect that you can decide who goes on the board of directors. But you don't. The preferred stockholders might only have 20% of the shares, but they might have the right to appoint two directors, where you and any other holders of common stock only get to elect one director. Preferred stock trumps common stock, and you'll find that all substantial control of a venture-backed startup company rests with the investors. They get to decide who controls the board of directors, often appoint the CEO, decide when and at what price the company is sold, and make all the significant decisions. Again, if you're curious as to how this works, listen to the episode titled Preferred Pizza Toppings. So far, we've talked about corporations, where the structure is well-defined and predictable. But there are other forms of business, such as LLCs and partnerships, and the power and control structures in these organizations is not very predictable at all. LLCs and partnerships don't have shareholders or a board of directors. 
The stakeholders in an LLC are called members and managers. Those in a partnership are called partners, and whatever names they decide to use in their operating agreements. You see, when a partnership or LLC is formed, the way the power is distributed and the way that decisions are made is defined in the operating agreement, and this can be different from company to company. Virtually any arrangement you can write onto a piece of paper can be defined in the operating agreement, and some of them are very creative, producing hierarchies of members, partners, and decision-making panels. LLCs and partnerships are so unpredictable in their organizational structure that venture capital investors tend to avoid them altogether. That's one of the reasons why they focus their investments on Delaware corporations. They're familiar with the chain of authority from the shareholders through the board of directors to the officers, and they can rely on Delaware law to give them the powers they seek. Where I can tell you where the power lies in a traditional corporation and in an investor-backed corporation, where you can be sure the power lies with the investors, the structure of each LLC or partnership can be customized to such an extent that each company works to its own rules. So, in this episode, we've learned that shareholders in a corporation can hire and fire the board of directors, and the board can hire and fire the officers, including the CEO, but we've also learned that the shareholders only have powers to vote and the power to run the operations of the company rests with the board and the CEO acting as agent for the board. In the preferred pizza toppings episode, we learned how the traditional control structure is distorted by preferred stock that's issued to venture capitalists and other investors, and how these shareholders have superior powers to the company founders and the other holders of common stock. This episode draws from materials in our Silicon Valley Business School Business Organizations course. For more information, check out the online course catalog on the svbs.co website. You're welcome to join me in my Silicon Valley Business School chat room where I can answer your questions. You'll see that we have other experts on the svbs.co website. You can easily book a one-to-one video conference if you have any specific questions. I hope you'll join us for future podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe so you get new episodes as and when they're released. And please rate us in your podcast player, as this will help us get the word out to entrepreneurs and the other people we're trying to help with this podcast series. That's it for today. Hope you'll join me for the next Silicon Valley Trends, the podcast for innovators and entrepreneurs.